The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. and indicates the primary text from which I'll speak as 2 Peter chapter 1, but I first want to emphasize a companion piece to it, very much so, that was used in our assurance of the grace of God from 2 Timothy. I'll just read verse 316 there. 2 Timothy 316, I reiterate what Pastor Light read, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Then a parallel to that saying much the same thing, at least in the end part of it. Verse 21 is the main focus, but I read Second Peter 1, beginning at 16. Peter writes, We did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. You quite possibly know that author Samuel Clemens, better known as Mark Twain, was a man of skeptical opinions, even though he had a wife of strong evangelical faith. Mark Twain didn't hesitate to speak about the Bible this way, although interestingly, this was said in something he wrote after his wife's death. He said, the Bible, oh yes, it's a book full of much interest. It contains noble poetry and some clever fables and some blood-drenched history and some good morals and a wealth of obscenities and upwards of a thousand lies. Well, among its many detractors and critics, the Christian Bible has had worse things said about it than Mark Twain said. And it still survives, actually, in excellent health today after people like Mark Twain have long ago turned into dust. If you haven't been with us, I say to you, we've been 
beginning a series of studies on key subjects to help us answer the simple but rather profound question, why trust the Bible? I'm going to take a few minutes here at the beginning today to sort of give you a glimpse of where I'm going or maybe how my mind is working through this theme, so you might perhaps anticipate what I'm going to say, and you'll say, well, you haven't told me this yet, and maybe you'll understand that I'm going to hopefully touch that in the sixth or the eighth or the tenth week of dealing with this subject. First of all, two weeks ago, I began by suggesting to you that at least since the late 19th century, we've had a crisis of biblical authority. Many American Protestants didn't sense this for a long time until even the mid-20th century in some cases, if they happen to have a conservative church with a Bible-preaching pastor. And then, much as this congregation and its roots experienced, all of a sudden, in the 60s or that era, it exploded upon them that there were many who no longer believed in the authority of the Bible. Secondly, last week I offered you Psalm 19 with the very biblical thesis that said the true God is a God who speaks. He speaks in nature, but he doesn't tell us about salvation there. He calls us to see his wonders and hopefully to adore him, but we need special revelation, which that psalm also spoke about, to know further the will of God regarding our salvation. And I also pointed out on the side that Isaiah 44 stated that false gods are gods who don't speak. In fact, they're notorious for being deaf and dumb and generally useless. Now, today, week three, I'm inquiring into the how. How does God reveal himself understandably to human beings so that we might have the mind of God in our language? And the key term we'll speak about is the term inspiration. Next time, which is really a companion to this, and it'll be two weeks from now because I'll be absent next week, but next time we'll go over obvious evidences that the Bible presents that indeed it is inspired. Not, we don't just have to take it by faith, but there are good things to buttress and support our faith. Week five, we're going to look at the importance of the testimony of the Holy Spirit directly to each of us as a believer, as you could call it the final clincher. The thing that really convinces us, yes, indeed, God's Word is true and I can trust it. Let's see. Then we're going to ask the question on week six about the right books. Do we have them? The subject of the canon, C-A-N-O-N, means collection. Do we have the right books in the Old Testament and the New Testament? Do we have perhaps a book or two that we shouldn't have? Are there books that some would tell us have been left out that should be there? That's a huge subject, but we'll try to touch on that in an upcoming week. Then I'm going to talk for a week about Jesus' view of the Bible. Then on week eight, we're going to face the allegation that the Bible supposedly has many contradictions. There are plenty of people who will swear to you right away if the Bible is, oh, the Bible's full of contradictions. Well, it's interesting that they know that when great scholars who have studied it haven't found it out yet. But uh, people seem to think they can blithely assume that. Let's look at that in a week coming. We're going to talk then about the subjects of infallibility and or inerrancy, two terms that we think apply to God's Word. Why do they apply? And there's a few more beyond that. I'm not going to give you the whole thing right now, but I look at us being into November with this subject, Lord willing.
I just want to whet your appetite for where we're going. Well, with many of those issues still ahead of us, we ask today, how is it that we can believe that precise words and promises and principles from the mind of God himself came to be written down by men in the Hebrew or Greek language and then translated for us to read and understand today? And there are essentially two major schools of looking at this whole thing of the Bible. Is it a totally natural book or is it a supernatural book? And people quickly support, uh, sort themselves out into one of those two schools of thought. There is a so-called liberal, and I use that term carefully because liberal is supposed to mean, you know, open to many things, uh, wide open to, to uh, in your thinking to new views and so on. doesn't mean that at all today. I use it in the more negative term of your mind is made up that the Bible is a naturalistic human book. There's that viewpoint today which holds sway in many, many seminaries and pulpits. And it's been that way for more than a century now that the Bible is primarily and simply a human creation as 40 Gifted people, surely they were gifted, over time, over the space of many centuries, wrote down 66 books with separate origins in separate times and places, some two million words. Somebody has counted them. I haven't, but I take it on somebody's word that there's two million in there. And here we have this marvelous human creation, literary work above all literary works, no matter what. You, You have to respect the Bible as a literary work. But these folks would say, look, after all, it is a human book. And it it imbibes all the cultural attitudes and all the biases and all the mistakes that human beings make. For example, and an outstanding characteristic of this naturalistic viewpoint is that, that these folks see any kind of miracle as an evidence of somebody who's, you know, working from a simple-minded viewpoint. Uh, they would say, well, you have, to, you have to cut these folks in the past some slack. You know, they just didn't have a scientific outlook on the universe. They didn't know everything we know. That's a great one. You know, they didn't know what we know. Listen, the ancient Greeks were smarter than all of us put together. But supposedly, these people didn't know very much. And so if they were afraid of something or they couldn't explain it any other way, they said, oh, let's have a miracle. And we can't have that kind of thing. So Let's just set those aside. The humanistic viewpoint is the Bible is human literature, so we can critique it, dissect it, reject parts of it, and keep parts we want to based on supposedly higher standards of advanced wisdom. It always has interested me that the criticism that came across the ocean from Germany in the 19th century from the German universities like Munich and Gerdigen and other places was called higher criticism. Higher. I I don't know actually the origin of that, but it seems to imply somebody talking from a higher position than the rest of us poor lowly folks who don't know anything. Well, that's the humanistic view. Contrary to that, we have the supernaturalistic viewpoint held to, we think, by the biblical prophets, apostles, early church fathers, every one of the Protestant reformers, and I hope ourselves. And this view says the explanation of the Bible is explained from within God himself, that God, by his Spirit, was actually communicating himself in a marvelous way 
to human penmen. And so, yes, indeed, there were authors involved, and they were real men, and they put in little things like Paul saying in 2 Timothy 4, Timothy, be sure when you come, bring my books and my cloak. And that got into the Bible. And we say, well, that's odd. That just seems like a little footnote that shouldn't have been in Holy Scripture. But it shows us these were real men receiving real-life communication. Nevertheless, that God was the one communicating. He was the author with a capital A. Now, we have to embrace this second proposition or viewpoint in, in faith, to be sure. And I'm going to speak about that today. It's faith that God worked a divinely mysterious thing. Now, some of you won't like that I say this, but I guess I'll say it anyway. Uh, here in our own city of Lancaster, we have a, a very easy and, and very solid illustration of these two viewpoints. On the west side of the city, we have a theological seminary. And you will see in every teacher in that theological seminary, without exception, I can say that, the naturalist viewpoint of the Bible. It's a work of literature, so cut it up. Ask yourself, what's the feminist view of Amos or something? There was actually a book just published by a professor, The Feminist Interpretation of Amos. I'm sure the feminist interpretation of Amos never occurred to Amos, but it occurs to this professor as being very important. You have a naturalistic viewpoint of the Bible. Here on this side of town, you have a Bible college, one to be honored, which has the supernaturalistic viewpoint and says the Scriptures originate from God. Two institutions, two sides of the same city, opposite viewpoints of the Bible. Today we want to explain, as far as we can, this supernaturalist view and what is the heart of it. And it's going to flow right into what I say the next time out, but uh, I can't really finish it today, but I'll try to get it started. Our first point here, a major point, is to look at the two parallel statements from 2 Timothy 3.16 and from 2 Peter 1.21. And we need to state this as, as this first point. The biblical bridge between God's self-revelation and human written language is called inspiration. Now, you see, the problem is we use the word inspiring or inspired or inspiration in a different way than the Bible does. We say, oh, I, you know, I watched the award ceremony at the Olympics and and there were these wonderful athletes after they'd performed their feats, and they were all standing there with their hands over their heart, and the Star-Spangled Banner was playing, and I was inspired as a patriot and a citizen. Well, that's good. That's fine. By all means, be inspired. Or you read some, maybe you like Robert Frost's poetry, and you read Mending Wall, and you say, oh, that, that's such an inspiring poem to me. Well, indeed, there are human things, human experiences that are inspiring, but that does not mean the same thing as the Bible means and as we mean here today. We mean it in the very specific terminology of 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God, literally expired, if you want, rather than inspired, but that would be if you're breathing out. You know, EX is this for out. You go through an exit to leave a room. All Scripture is expired breathed out by God. And 2 Peter one twenty one says it in a metaphor, no prophecy was produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along. Something was conveying them, moving them. 
by the Holy Spirit, and we always think there of a, of a sailboat. And, you know, sailboats are absolutely the most useless thing in the world. You know, it's a, it's a hole in the water to pour money into unless it has a mast and a sail and wind. You need wind. Someone sitting in this room that remembers being on the Chesapeake Bay with my wife and I, we had an absolutely delightful day in, in their sailboat. And they were a little bit frustrated because the wind was, I guess, poor. I didn't have anything to compare it to. I thought it was fine. But there wasn't enough wind to really propel us the way this person knew that it could. The breath of God, the Spirit of God, is the active agent in these texts here that we're looking at today. The idea that God himself breathes rhymes with the Spirit of God, the action of the Spirit of God. I would take you back to Genesis 2-7. There we read of God's creative act of man. And it says, God formed the man out of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The Hebrew word for breath or wind is the same word for spirit, interestingly, you study Hebrew, and they teach you to, to make a glottal sound in the back of your throat. This is the ruach of God, the ruach, the wind of God. Breath and spirit are the same thing. God's spirit put the very life of God into the man whom God had made. So it's the spirit who is the life-giving, communicative agency of God to communicate his supernatural work. And we say it's the same thing for Scripture. Just as God gave life to the man that he made, who was just so much dust before, he gives life to what would just be words on paper if it were not that he made them alive and made them powerful. Now you say, well, okay, you know, this sounds kind of mysterious. You haven't really analyzed this like a scientist to the point of telling me exactly how it takes place or what takes place. And I say to you, I don't apologize. I've taken you as far as the Scripture tells me. God didn't choose to totally remove the element of mystery from this, like many other things in Scripture. There's mystery. If we're to have faith, there are going to be some things that can't be fully explained. But we're helped here, I think, by that sailboat idea applying to Second Peter one twenty-one. You have an object which is the same as a human author ready to write Scripture, and you have him all ready to pen a letter to the Corinthians or pen the Gospel of Luke or something. But you need the wind in his sails or he goes nowhere. And that's what indeed Peter says. Peter, as one of those authors himself, knew that he could write and write volumes, and it would mean nothing unless God was mysteriously, supernaturally, empowering what he wrote and moving him along. The theologian has a term where he talks about this action of God and action of man together. And he says there's a principle of concurrence going on, that the two occur together, that God comes into the man, awakens the man, and gives life to the man's words. It's not, as we're tempted to think it must be, just a case of dead dictation. I don't have it on a computer of mine, but I'm sure that some of you present have voice recognition software, maybe where you work or maybe on your personal 
computer where you talk, you dictate into the computer, and words are on the screen. What you are saying is translated on the screen. That's what we're tending to think this must be. God is, you know, sort of speaking in the ear of Paul. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And Paul's typing as fast as he can type to get the words down. But that's not it. That's not the way it's conveyed. It's more mysterious than that. God gave shape to a real man named Paul and a real man named Peter and Isaiah and anyone else, any other biblical author you want to name. He shaped that man. He shaped his experiences. He shaped his learning, his interactions, his understanding of doctrine, his conversion experience. Everything that ever made that individual who he was was shaped by God so that that individual, as a vessel of the Holy Spirit, could speak and it could be believed that God was speaking through him. And the evidence is there from little things, like I mentioned a minute ago, the fact that, that Paul would add at the end of a, an, an epistle rich with instruction for the church a little detail like, hey, Timothy, bring my books and my cloak. Well, you can't forget that this is Paul. He's a real person. He certainly has all the quirks and characteristics of a man. He's had a tendency to be strong-minded and boldly spoken and other things, very marvelous intellect and so on. But above all, there was a concurrence working in him of the mind and thoughts of God conveyed to him by the Holy Spirit. God was superintending everything about Paul and what he wrote and what he did so that we could actually say what was produced from them were the very words of God. Now, there's mystery there. I don't apologize. We can't have a laboratory analysis. You know, you take in the lab, some of you are chemists, and, you well, we want to break down a compound into its constituent elements. We want to get it more scientifically refined. You really can't do that here. It's more of an organic thing, we might say, of God working within a personality, and the personality is never obliterated, and they are not turned into dictaphone machines. So you've got to keep it balanced. There's a man speaking, but God is speaking. A man is speaking, and God is speaking. It's not one, one here and one there. It's both together. And if you emphasize too strongly the human side of the equation, then you've got that rationalistic, natural revelation, which we don't see where you're going to say, well, this is merely human beings, so we can treat what they say like the works of Shakespeare and, you know, take it all apart and say, well, we think somebody else wrote this line and patched it in later and and that kind of thing. That's done all the time today in what is called the higher criticism of the Bible. And quite often when you get done, you know, the Gospels aren't real Gospels. Half of what Jesus said, Jesus didn't really say, and so on and so forth. On down it goes. J.I. Packer, a very fine scholar, summarized in these words. He said, The wonder of the Bible's first creation is that instead of imposing arbitrary limits on what the human author was allowed to say, God so formed them as individuals over their entire lifespans so that each one could freely and spontaneously and without inhibition of his mental processes, write down infallible truths that actually were from God. Now, that sounds a little complicated. 
But it's saying there's a wonderful supernatural process of God actually working in the author. And the summary then for inspiration is a prophet or apostle raised his sail and God filled it with his breeze. Now that was the first point, much shorter second point. Let me suggest to you secondly, there are many modes or methods by which God worked to inspire human authors. And here we could get into endless variety. In other words, not everybody was sitting in a prison cell writing a letter to a young disciple like Timothy. Moses was basically composing a history of God's works in Israel, what he had done. He was writing history. Luke was writing history, and since he wasn't one of the original 12 disciples, he said, I had to do research. I had to consult many, many people. And that, too, you see, was part of God's process, doing research. As any of you students know that you're going to write a term paper, you've got to go find out what other people had to say. That happened in some of the writing of Scripture. Writing history of what God had done is a big part. Often, as, as Peter insisted here in the text about the, the transfiguration, he said, I wasn't telling you a fable when I wrote about the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain. I was there. I saw it. I heard the voice of God. I'm just reporting what I saw and heard. And that's what a lot of Scripture is, just reporting what was seen. But then there are the miracles reported straightforwardly by people who weren't ignorant. They weren't stupid. Luke was a doctor. Believe me, if you want to go back and study the history of medicine, you'll quickly find out that the Greeks were probably, the average Greek physician before the time of Christ was probably smarter about the human body and what to do to it than, let's say, some quack doctor on the frontier of Kentucky a hundred years ago. I mean, they invented medicine, basically, or, well, so did others, the Chinese and others understood medical things, but the Greeks were great physicians and understood a lot about the human body. Luke was a physician of Greek training. He wasn't stupid. He knew how babies were conceived when he wrote about the virgin birth of Christ. But these people were convinced by the Holy Spirit that they had seen miraculous things. There were dreams, there were visions, there were angelic visitations. These things were part of God's supernatural revelation. There were prophecies. The fascinating thing for me was often in the case of prophecy, it wasn't as though Isaiah or Jeremiah or Amos or somebody was sitting there and saying, oh, God just dropped a prophecy on my front porch, you know, like a FedEx package. Oh, it's a prophecy. Let's unwrap it. No, a lot of times these fellows were speaking and they would have been first to admit, I don't understand what that means, that God is going to do such and such. And they would have had to say, I don't know when or how he's going to do that. I don't even know why I thought that, but God impressed it strongly on me. And we have that. We saw it in Job. Remember Job saying, I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand in the final day upon the earth. Let me tell you, Job didn't know the name of Jesus Christ or the second coming of Christ, but he wrote what God revealed. And marvelously, it concurs exactly with what God is doing in history. Others wrote psalms, music for worship. There, too, the Spirit was stirring and revealing. Proverbs of wisdom, personal letters. These are all modes or methodologies by which God revealed himself. Here was uh, Paul writing Second Timothy, one of his very last works to his young friend. 
Be courageous, Timothy. Preach the word. Perhaps as far as Paul knew, I don't know whether Paul knew, I don't think he did, that this was going to be in the collection of the New Testament one day and somebody 2,000 years later would be preaching from it. He was writing a letter to his young friend. But God was using and superintending and giving power that would last for century in those things, providentially engineering it all. Well, third and finally today, let me suggest this way of passing. And this isn't in one of those texts per se, but it's a helpful illustration for you. I say to you that the work of the Holy Spirit in inspiring the Bible may be compared to the role of the Holy Spirit in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Did you ever think about that? The virgin birth, what did we have? A human person. The Virgin Mary, probably a teenage girl, had never known a man. And God says, you're going to be the bearer of the Savior. What? How could that be? How can I do that? Luke one thirty-five tells of the angel's announcement to Mary. The Holy Spirit will come on you. Remember Luke the physician saying this. The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the Spirit of the Most High will overshadow you so that the holy thing born of you will be called Son of God. What was Luke announcing, or the angel announcing? A miracle. Mary, you're going to experience a miracle. It'll be a real pregnancy. You'll give birth to a real boy. He'll be a man of flesh like any other man of flesh. You can shake his hand, talk to him. You know, he can play ball with his friends when he's young. He'll hunger, he'll thirst, he'll cry, he'll bleed. He's a real man. But obviously, there's something very, very different because he doesn't have a human father. The Holy Spirit will overshadow and accomplish this thing in his power. Don't you see that that's exactly what we can say about Scripture? That Scripture came into being in a very parallel way in which Jesus became incarnate in the flesh as the Savior. My wife and I are in the business of trimming down our household I think our trash service is soon going to lower the boom on us because every week there's been more and more out there. We're cleaning out. The most painful part definitely has to be the books. Let me tell you, we've gone from about 5,000 down to closer to three now, and it gets really hard from this point onwards, but we're still working at it. Maybe you want to drive by our house some Sunday night and (laughs) check out the boxes. There's good stuff there besides books. I love books, obviously, and I have a lot of them. My chief weakness and my chief expense, other than the necessities of life, I have books that are great novels that I consider so wonderful that I've been able to read them maybe once every five years or so for 30 years and enjoyed them each time. I have books where the author's skill to me is so near genius level, like the murder mysteries of P.D. James, that I read them and just marvel at the skill that this woman writer had. But let me tell you, of all the books I have, there isn't anything that has ever come into the same category as this one. And this one's not going to be out on the street. You can be sure of that. Shakespeare, okay, he was a good guy. Pretty smart for the most part. Certainly can't figure out how he knew all that he knew by being a man living in rural England most of the time. How did he know about the court of Venice? Never figured that one out. But wonderful books that man has written. 
poetry. But nothing's in the same class as the Word of God. Scripture is the only supernaturally born book. And it's not about the genius of its writing. It does have great writing. It does have great poetry. Other times it has very dull pedestrian stuff, quite frankly. I mean, Second Chronicles, give me a break. You know, I, I, please hear me reverently. I'm speaking about the Word of God. But Second Chronicles and many parts of Leviticus are not what you want to read to wake up in the morning. But it's history that's important, and God wanted us to have it, and we should value it for what it is. But it's not Psalm 23. It, you know, it's not Isaiah 53 or something like that. This is not a book that I discovered as being a great book. This is a book that discovers me. It knows me. It meets me at every corner, at every place I turn. It tells me who I am and who God is and humbles me and then raises me up with hope and rejoicing. And yes, to believe that, that it's breathed out from God, does require an act of faith Next time, I do hope to show you that that isn't a blind faith because there are evidences, there are many things that we can say about this book that just amaze us and make us say, well, goodness, I don't know how else we would explain it except by saying it's a miraculous book. We can't explain it by natural means. But for today, please just hear Peter, 2 Peter 1. You will do well to pay attention to this prophetic word, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. That's a name for Christ, I hope you realize. For no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of your word. Father, help us to have a new attention and a new hunger for the sweetness and the rewards and the filling and the strengthening and the empowering of our lives by your word. May we not just read books about it, but read it and absorb it, memorize it, think upon it. Father, enrich our lives as we dwell on this great gift you've given the church, your holy word. Amen.